You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. All right, there is a really big difference between knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. I think this is true in our relationship with the Lord. I think it's true in our relationship with each other. It's certainly true in marriage. For those of you that might be married, Mandy and I, tomorrow, will be celebrating 19 years, which is kind of incredible. That's like, she deserves a medal. You have no idea. So last year, uh, we were planning this upcoming year's spring break, okay? So just this last March. You need to know that Mandy and I have very, very different uh, views of what vacation should be like, okay? Now, I should know this. I should know the right thing to do, right? If you're a husband, you know how this works. Still. So Mandy's idea of vacation, well, we'll get to hers in a minute. I want to tell you mine, because mine's right. <clears throat> Here's what we should do. I said, for spring break, what we should do as a family is we should go out into the woods. We should have our cabin, like, back out in the woods, like, fires at night. If there's a trout stream nearby, that's awesome. We can go on hikes, like, we can camp, right? Hmm. Mandy's idea of vacation is a little bit different. Her idea of camping is when the hotel has a window to look outside. That's camping for her. She likes to go someplace south, someplace warmer, right, near a beach, where there's salt water and things like that. And so I said, listen, dear, like, this is my spring break true too. This is my vacation, too. And so we are going to a cabin in the woods. We're going to a beach. We're doing this, and we're going to go fishing. So six months later, while I'm sitting on the beach, <laughs> and I'm feeling a little salty. These are the beach puns. They don't get any better. That's all it is. All right. There's a big difference between knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. And after 19 years or so, you'd think I would know, like, serve your wife, serve your family, be selfless, don't drive after everything that you want. You think you would know, right? But still, we miss it. Knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. If you know what that feeling is, like, man, I feel like I know it, but it's so hard to do it. Is there any part of you, when you think of your spiritual life, that resonates with that sentiment? I know what I should do. It is so hard to actually do it. So we've been walking through Ephesians, and today we turn the corner from chapters 1 through 3 to chapters 4, 5, and 6. In these last few months, if you've been scratching your head, and you've been silently sitting, patiently waiting, internally asking, like, hey, chapters 1 through 3, this is great, wonderful poetry, wonderful theology, but what does any of this have to do with me now? I'm happy for the theology, 1 through 3 is wonderful, but please show me some relevance, show me how any of what you've been preaching connects to my life. If that's you, today is your day. So we're going to be in Ephesians 4. We're going to take a turn from just knowing the right thing to now actually doing the right thing. Ephesians chapter 4, go ahead and turn to verse 1. This is part 2 of the letter. 
the second half of what Paul writes to this church in Ephesus that is trying to learn not just how to know what's right, but how to do what's right. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, here we go. I therefore stop. You knew I was going to do that. That's how this works. The section starts with a therefore. This is a huge signal for Paul. And this is super cheesy, but Brummy mentioned this when he preached a couple weeks ago. You're going to remember it. Anytime you're reading scripture and you see a therefore, you need to stop and see what it's therefore. Thank you. This lets us know that Paul is shifting directions. Simply put, everything he's about to say in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is based on everything he has said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. This is Paul like flashing a giant red light in our faces going, do you want to know how to live right? Okay, here it comes. Now, for the data analysts among us, any data people out there, you like numbers and like facts and figures and how this stuff works? It's funny, like grammar people like to self-identify, data people not so much. It's okay. We're all nerds here, it's fine. Here's something you need to know. Ephesians, as a letter, has 41 imperative verbs. 41 imperative verbs in six chapters. Imperative words are command words. Sit, walk, speak, roll over. Imperative words give specific direction to a specific person. And Ephesians has 41 of them, but get this. Out of those 41, only one shows up in the first three chapters. It's the word remember in chapter 2, verse 11, for those that are curious. That leaves 40 commands in the last three chapters. Here's why I bring this up. Paul wants the Ephesian church to understand that the only reason to do anything of what he's going to call us to do in these last three chapters is because of what God has already done. Since you're saved, Ephesians 1 right? Predestined, called, adopted, holy, all those things, forgiven, redeemed. Since you've been saved by grace, Ephesians 2. Since you're one people, Ephesians 3. Because of all that, this. If you haven't been made new, chapters 1 through 3, doing all these upcoming commands will flow out of an unregenerate and unsaved heart. This is an important thing we need to catch. Don't do the word of God. Don't obey God. Don't follow his commands because you think that you're going to earn some points on some cosmic scoreboard somewhere. We would be wrong to see Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 as a list of things that I must do to try and impress God or try and do right and act right. Not really. Because if you're not saved, verses, or chapters 1, 2, and 3, if this isn't true of you, all this other stuff just clutters everything up. It's good behavior. But remember, the gospel says that behavior is not enough. Behavior doesn't save you. Christ saves you. And the gospel says Jesus didn't die so that you could behave. He died so that you could be new. So, therefore... What? Let's get back to the text. And here comes the first thing a church needs to do in response to the avalanche of grace in chapters 1 through 3. Here's what he says. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, there he is with that image again, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, 
patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The phrase that we should hit first, walk in a manner worthy. Worthy. That's an ancient expression, and it actually calls to mind those old like scales of justice, that sculpture that you might have in mind, like you think about ancient courtrooms. And Paul's using that idea of worthiness very deliberately. He's saying, on this side, you've got this. And on this side, you've got this. And they should be equal. So what are the thises? What should be equal? What's he trying to measure out here? First thing first, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now this is everything in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. You're saved by grace. You're new people. You're heirs to the promise of the gospel. This is your calling. This is your, what you believe or what you say you believe, right? If you're a Christian. Another word for that is this is your profession. This is what you profess. But then Paul names the second side of this scale in the form of a verb. And this is where it gets really tough. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this, to walk. On one side, my profession, and then on this side, my practice. (laughs) On this side, what I say I believe, and this, what I actually do, how I actually live. And Paul's just basically saying right here, at the beginning of chapter four, just make sure this matches. (laughs) Just make sure that the grace that you are so thankful for shows up in your life. Okay, you ready? (laughs) This is Paul hitting on what is one of the most consistent objections to Christianity across all time. And it's not just for the Ephesians. It's absolutely true today. Practical hypocrisy. And I hate to go there. But that's what he's trying to get under here. Professing this, practicing this. And we have this imbalance in our life. Tell me if you've ever heard this before. You know the problem with Christians? They're all hypocrites. They say one thing, but they do another. They talk a lot about grace and mercy, but when it comes down to it, ugh. They say they follow Jesus, but some of them are the nastiest people. They talk about purity and holiness, but I just see sex scandal after sex scandal. They follow Jesus, who saw the poor and the marginalized, greedy. They say that his kingdom is not of this world, but all I see is the pursuit of power and position. And this is Paul just going, look, just make sure they match. (laughs) And so for me and for you, We have to let the question come into focus for us personally. Do they in your life? It's really hard to say that affirmatively, isn't it? Really hard. No no one's going to raise your hand for that one. So getting personal, here's how this passage hits me. And we should reflect for just a moment. When I um, find that my words or my profession doesn't match my actions when my profession doesn't match my practice, which one is the one that goes first? Here's what I've noticed, at least for me, and maybe you're the same way. 
When I see the gap between my profession and my practice, I'm usually quicker to turn down the volume of my profession than to courageously reevaluate my action. <laughs> you following me on that one? This room just got really quiet, I'm sorry. When faced with the reality of our own hypocrisy, which we've all got, by the way, so let's just get that out on the table, most of us will choose to become increasingly silent and avoidant about the things that we're failing at than do the hard work of looking in the mirror and repenting. In short, we just become silent spiritual cowards. Why? Because that's how insidious pride is. I'd rather just not profess Christ as loudly. That way I don't have to change my action as much. Maybe that's just me. Maybe you're okay. The problem isn't only hypocrisy. The problem isn't only our imbalance. The problem isn't only that I don't say what I do and don't do what I say, as problematic as that disconnection might be. The problem is what I do next. <laughs> what happens when I discover that I am not as right as I am? As right as I thought I was. <laughs> The real problem, and it's a problem that a watching world can see a mile away, is that when presented with the disconnect between profession and practice, many Christians dig our heels in deeper into our sense of self-righteousness than choose the harder path of reevaluation and repentance. And maybe this is overstated, but I don't think so. What we believe about God the Father reveals itself not just in how thankful we are for his grace, thank you chapters one through three, but in how honestly, sincerely, fully we repent when we realize that we're not walking in a way that's worthy of it. If I could take a straw poll, how many of you think God the Father is good? Hands would shoot up. And then I would go, okay, how often do we repent and fall back to his goodness now that we're already saved? Most of us would go, well, I don't think I do that all that often. That's what Paul is calling us to consider here. Just think about this. Everybody loves chapters one through three. Christ saves guilty sinners. Yay, grace! But how quickly we forget that that same grace is available when we realize that we still need him. Oh my God, you've saved me. Thank you. Oh my God, help me to live like it. <laughs> the minute I feel the imbalance between profession and practice, that's when theology gets practical. Now, if you were Paul, right, and you were talking to this church, and you wanted to help them close the gap or to bring balance between profession and practice, if you had written all this great poetry and theology about Christ's work on our behalf, if you were Paul, what issue, what conversation would you choose to start as an example to bring balance? Sexuality? That's a big deal in ancient Ephesus, big deal today, right? I know a lot of us could probably do with a little balance act here. What about substance abuse, right? We know Alcohol consumption in the Ephesian church, we look in our world today, like you go, gosh, there just seems like there's a lot of this stuff going on. Let's close this gap. How about racial reconciliation? We know that was a big deal for the Ephesian church. It's a big deal today. Maybe that could be the place where we evaluate our balance. So where does Paul start? Take a look in verse two again. He says this, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One idea, church unity. You've got to be kidding me, Paul. (laughs) Given all the possibilities on the table to talk about profession and practice disconnect, that's where you start? (laughs) This section hangs on one word, and it's in verse 3. You can underline it or circle it. Eager to maintain. Eager means to spare no effort, to break a sweat. This is priority number one. Do everything you can to maintain the spirit of the unity and the bond of peace. This is a phenomenally sweeping image with a ton of implications. And so to illustrate it, I want to tell you just a quick fable. Um, It's a short fable. I think it's going to be helpful. I call it barbecue and brownies on the back porch, and here's how it goes. Imagine it's the day before Thanksgiving, and your grandma, who has hosted Thanksgiving dinner for 50 years, gives you a call or a text, depending on your particular grandma. Here's what she says. She says, hey, I know for the last 50 years, we've had turkey on Thanksgiving. This year, we're switching things up a little bit. Barbecue spare ribs. I got a great new barbecue recipe that I want to work on. Think of half rack of ribs, it'd be great. Also, I know every year we have pumpkin pie. We're not doing that this year. Brownies, just everywhere. Brownies, different kinds of brownies. That's what we're doing for dessert. Third thing that we're doing this year. I know we always eat in the kitchen and like the kids eat there and like the dining room is where all the adults eat. We're not doing any of that. We're going out on the back porch. I got some brand new heaters. We're gonna have a campfire and we're gonna hang out out there, all right? So in summary, barbecue, brownies, back porch, click. And you go, okay. Interesting. Silently wondering to yourself, how's this actually going to go? And so, sure enough, Thanksgiving morning, you and your crew show up, and you walk into the house, and holy smokes, Grandma is serious. You're immediately hit with the smell of barbecue sauce. And you look around, and there's not a pumpkin pie to be found. Instead, there's brownie tins everywhere. And then you look out on the back porch, and sure enough, there's heaters out there. And you're going, this is going to be interesting. Now, here's what you might do in that situation. You might think to yourself, huh, I don't know how this is going to work. You might wonder to yourself, gosh, I like turkey, and I like pumpkin pie, and I don't know that I like eating outside in November, and this is going to be a little bit odd. You may even vocalize that concern to your cousin who's sitting next to you and say, dude, I think grandma's a little crazy. It's time to talk next steps. Like, we don't know. You might do all of those things, and all of those things would be justifiable responses. One thing you would not do, you would not go and get yourself a new grandma. (laughs) Why? Because beneath everything else, you belong together. This is family, and this is what families do. And so while the table is being set and all throughout dinner and doing the dishes after dinner, you will eagerly maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. Why? Because you love your grandma. Now you get the metaphor, and you don't need me to push it any further, but I will. It's a goofy fable. And as odd as it sounds, people leave their grandmas every Sunday. Here's the principle. What you fight for reveals what you love most. 
what you fight for reveals what you love most. And so what's Paul calling us to here? He says, fight for the unity of the church because you love the church. Now here's the exception clause. If you don't want to call church family, cool. You almost get like an eject button here. You get an opt out. But if we are bold enough to call church family, like really say that word, really, and really mean it, beneath everything else, you belong together. And this is family, and this is what families do. This goes way beyond the hymns and choruses conversation, although it probably includes that. This goes way beyond what I like or what I don't like. Anybody can critique the barbecue sauce until you're in the kitchen. This goes way beyond all the political garbage, although it definitely includes that these days. This fable asks a deceptively deep question, and here it is. Am I willing to be inconvenienced by those I love for the sake of the better? And I can't answer that question for you. Am I willing to be inconvenienced by those I love for the sake of the better? Ask another way. Am I willing to fight for those I love, or would I rather just kind of fight with those I love? That's what Paul's asking us to consider here. To fight for the kind of unity that defies explanation and runs deeper than expectation. When I read this, here are the words that stick out to me if you're an underliner in your Bible like I am. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and then the bond of what? Peace. Could you imagine what a lost world would do with a church that sounded like that? (laughs) I love that vision of church, don't you? That's not a rhetorical question. Anybody want to get there? Like, let's go after that. What would that sound like, I wonder? In my church, nobody thinks they're better than anyone. They're just humble. doesn't matter what kind of car we drive, what kind of clothes we wear, how we look. We don't give a rip about that stuff anymore. Maybe we used to, but now we're going after something better. My church sees deeper than the stuff on the surface to the dignity that's hiding down beneath. They're so humble. But that humility shows up in ways that I didn't expect. First, my church is so gentle. In my church, abrasive attitudes just feel out of place. We're all just kind of left that stuff at the foot of the cross. That's part of who we used to be, but not anymore. We'd rather take our time and go softly than go hard and make a big stink. My church is so patient with me. Like, I don't get it. Grace after grace after grace after grace. They've walked with me through so much of my garbage, but it's like they won't quit on me. They just can't give up no matter what I do or how I fail. These people are still around me. They know that I'm walking through some hard stuff. They know I'm trying to figure things out. They know I'm fighting an unseen war, and they go to war for me. It's like they know this following Jesus takes time, and they're just so patient. And I'm never alone. They know the truth about me, and they choose to stay anyway. They seem weirdly eager to take whatever is bothering me. And they really want to know. That's weird. And they can see past what I do to what I'm believing or not believing. And they take those pains and put their burdens on, my burdens on their backs, even though it may mean some sleepless nights for them and a few hard conversations. But they're willing to walk with me through it. And speaking of conversations, another weird thing. No one wants to stir up controversy. 
They like, love this peace thing. We don't get into petty fights about passing things. It's like we're allergic to arguing. It's like someone just decided it wasn't worth it, and we all said, yeah, I agree. We've got better things to do, better words to say, better stories to tell. Real peace takes a lot of work, but it's just kind of who we are. We'd rather work hard at keeping friendships than work hard at proving our point. Jesus has changed us, and so we're just doing our best to keep in step as best we can. That's my church. I, I don't get it, but I love it. Could you imagine if that's how people talked about their church? And I don't just mean our church. I think our church is doing great on some of these things. I really, really believe that. And I get a front row seat to it. But we're not the only church in town that preaches the gospel. And as much as I am concerned about the state of our church, which is good, I think we are very healthy as a church. I hope you are also concerned about the state of the church in our world, in our country, in our town, in our city, in your neighborhood. Those words in that text are pretty powerful. Now, that's what happens in my head when I read those verses. That's what I was created for. And I don't say that to shame us. I say all that to focus us. This is the win, right? This is what we're shooting for. This is what I want for North Canton. In a world where church has sadly become associated with things like narcissistic pastors, political conflation, and sexual scandal, I am all about my absolute best trying to give everything I can for a little perception correction. How about you? (laughs) But don't agree with me too quickly. Because that will be very hard. Those words in verses 2 and 3, most of us have forgotten how to do this. If we're going to really be a church that images Jesus in a post-nominal Christian culture, this is going to take some work. It's going to take some different kind of work. I know how to fill a sanctuary. Like, we know how to do that. We know how to put together a Sunday morning service, right? We know how to do that. We know how to staff programs and do camps, and we know all that. But this is something else. This goes beyond songs and sermons. Patience, humility, gentleness, love, and peace. Those seem like they take a little bit longer In fact, I'd be really comfortable saying, if you want to grow a church quickly, don't do those things. But if you want to grow a church right, it's the only way you can start. So why, Paul? Surely there's something else. Why is this where you wanted to start? We've got a culture war to win out there. So why all the hippie, soft, like, peace and love stuff? (laughs) So in answer to that, Paul drops a giant theological bombshell. Why humility? Why patience? Why peace? Why love? Why all this stuff? Here's what he says in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Now, you don't have to have a seminary degree to, know, to catch Paul's repetitious use of the word one here. Seven times in three verses. And did you catch it, the Trinitarian imagery here? That's really significant. Look again. There's one body because there's one spirit. There's one hope because there's one Savior. And one family because there's one Father. So why lean so heavy into unity, Paul? So early in this last three-chapter cascade of commands that you've got for us? Why start here? Our oneness mirrors God's oneness. 
A church that divides over worldly things has a God who only cares about worldly things. But when a church breaks a sweat working for peace, there must be something else going on there. So, practically, born out of this, two quick promises that I want to make you. And then we're going to move on to the the second half of this text a little bit. Two quick promises born out of this text. Promise number one, church takes work. (laughs) Church takes work. I want to talk to those of you who are considering making North Canton Chapel your home church. Um, And I'm going to get weird for just a second. So, you may not know this, but like our numbers are, are on Sunday mornings and kind of what we look at every once in a while. They are higher than they were before COVID, which is great, and I, we celebrate that. However, <laughs> that makes it go like, okay, there's, there's folks maybe in this room or maybe some of you watching online that are going, all right, what's my next step here? What do I do? How do I really connect to this church and, and become a part of it and become a part of what God's doing here? We've got Membership Matters class coming up in September Keep an eye out for that. But if you want to land here, I want to be really clear because I love you. (laughs) I don't want to sell you on something because church is not a country club that caters to what you want. And so hear me. Please do not join this church if you're expecting to get what you want. Please do not do that. I would rather meet with you right now, like today, and have you say, hey, this is what I want. Here is my list. And I would be honest with you, and I wouldn't try and sell you. I would say, okay, that's not us. Here are a lot of great churches that you can go and check out. I know I don't sound like a really good pastor when I say that, but I'm trying to look out for your benefit. Like, no hard feelings. I would rather disappoint you now than give you the heartache later, because it's hard. Like, here, you're going to sing songs that you may not like, and that's okay. Here, you're going to have to sit through sermons that sometimes don't connect with you. That's okay. Here, if we're doing this right, you're going to have to wrestle with some deep stuff in your soul that you may not want to acknowledge yet. And all of that is really good because church is way more than songs and sermons. And so when Paul says, eager to maintain the bond of peace, or the spirit of unity in the bond of peace, what he means is church takes work. So that's the first promise. Second promise. The work is worth it. And so now I want to talk to those of you who call North Canton Chapel your home. I'm going to sound like such an old man here, but please stay with me. I'm going to sound like such a grandpa, but I really don't care. There are very few things in life that require nothing. Most good things take work. And if we believe that church is people, that means relationships, that takes work. And so if you have relationships that are broken or dysfunctional, or if there is unpeace somewhere, The calling now is to do the hard work of bringing reconciliation and inviting healing in as much as it depends on you. Here's why. The longer we live in dysfunction, if there's any of that in your life, the harder it will be to actually enjoy church. It's actually one of the hard things about having a church that is not a church plant. Okay? So this church is about 43 years old. Over 43 years of doing church is a good chance that there's some tough relationships lingering out there, right? I've been walking through stuff for decades. I promise you the work of restoration is way worth it. If you're a brand new church, everything's up and going, you don't have all that history yet. Here we've got history. And my promise to you is walking through that is so much better than ignoring it. Now, 
If you're sitting here and you're going, I don't know, this sounds like more than I bargained for. I'll go to church because it's kind of the right thing to do, but this sounds like work. If that's you, I feel like I should be honest and I should say some days that's me too, and I'm a pastor. <laughs> if you're asking, well, how can I get some help with this church thing? Good news, Paul is about to take that vision for church and move it into something incredible. We're going to look at verse 7 in just a second. Now, Paul moves from all of us, all this unity, church, business of peace, and all this. Now he's going to move from all of us to each of us. He's going to move from the unity of the church to diversity within the church. Having talked about what we all share, now he's going to talk about what makes us different. Here's what he says, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Slide down to verse 7. 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, so there are a few places in the New Testament, there's actually like four, that talk about what spiritual gifts are. This is one of them. And out of all those places, this is the most limited, it's the shortest list, because it focuses only on one type of spiritual gift in the church. These are leadership gifts in the local church. Paul names four categories of leaders in the local church. And at first glance, I know some of you, you're going like, wait, there's five. I see five. I underlined five. I promise you there's four. Sit tight. So I want to talk about what each one of these are and how they actually help us. First gift that he mentions is apostle. You see this in verse 11. Apostle. Apostle means sent one. And so strictly speaking, apostles are people who have seen the risen Christ and on whose authority the early church was established. Now, none of us in this room have seen the risen Christ in the way that the disciples and Paul had. And so apostleship, in this sense, isn't around today. The apostles were foundational for the early church. So you have apostles, then you have prophets. This one's a little bit different. Also there in verse 11. Prophets, there are two elements to this gift. One is foretelling. Okay, we see this in the Old Testament. A prophet, somebody who is given by God a gift to see a future reality that hasn't happened yet. That's foretelling. Because scripture is closed, meaning there's no new revelation from God, that element of prophecy is no longer around. But there's a second element of prophecy called forthtelling. So you have foretelling and forthtelling. Forthtelling, it's hard to say, Blah, 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 blah. Forth telling. This is someone who is gifted by God to see spiritual truth and spiritual pain and connect the two. This is someone who tells it like it is. They know what's going on and they can put their finger on the pulse and go, I know exactly what's happening here. Here is God's truth that you need to hear. These are very direct people that are gifted by God in this way. Prophets declare the gospel. Third role that Paul talks about here, is evangelists. Evangelist literally means good news teller. I think it's a great name, by the way. When I hear the word evangelist, I don't always think of that. But I like good news teller. That's literally what it means. This is a person who serves the kingdom of Christ by expanding its borders. They're always asking, 
Who hasn't heard yet? Where are the new frontiers? Where can we plant a church? Who needs to know Jesus in this coffee shop right now? That's the mind of an evangelist. Where can I punch a hole in the, sake, or in the darkness for the sake of the gospel? Evangelists share the gospel. And then for the fourth role, Paul moves specifically to the local church. All three of those in the early church operate independently of the local church, or they can. But this fourth one, it's right in the local church, and it's shepherd teacher, or your translation might say pastor teacher. In Greek, these two words are smashed together, so they're basically one idea. Basically, pastor teacher, shepherd teacher, these are people who shepherd God's flock by teaching God's word. This is someone who is obsessed with two things. They want to know people, and they want to know the word, and they want to bring them together as close as they can. That's what this person is called to do. They know their people and they know their word. They have a knack for unfolding God's word in such a way that God's truth is made plain and God's people respond in faith. So quick summary, and then we're going to move into something else. Apostles reveal the gospel. Prophets declare the gospel. Evangelists spread the gospel. And shepherd teachers teach the gospel. Now, back to the text for one last idea. Why? How does this work, Paul? Why are these people here? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say to do the ministry alone. He doesn't say to be the ones in the spotlight. He doesn't say to be the ones that the church rises and falls on. I'm here for one reason, to help you do what God's called you to do. And what are we paying you for? I don't know. Just joking. <laughs> a church that rests on the abilities of one pastor is a church that is one step away from imploding. And we've seen this in American church culture, haven't we? Like there's a ministry that revolves around one guy and that one guy does something stupid <laughs> or gets fired or leaves or moves or is caught in some scandal and then the whole ministry <laughs> implodes. And Paul says, no, not that. That's not your job. <laughs> that model of church says, come and see our awesome thing. And this one, the biblical model says, let's go and do the awesome thing. It's a difference of direction. I love that you're here on Sunday morning, but please don't come if all you're doing is being entertained. <laughs> come to be equipped so that you can go do. That's the biblical model of church. This is a centrifuge that spins you out that way. This is not the goal. That's the goal. But now watch what Paul does. He takes that and then he moves it even further. How long, Paul? What are we looking for? What's success? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, deceitful schemes. Well, what, what should we look like, Paul? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, there's that word again, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. This is what our grammar nerd people call an extended metaphor. (laughs) Paul takes this idea of a healthy, mature body and he lays it over a church. And if you're taking notes, four things this kind of church does. First, this is a body that knows Jesus and looks like him. It's in verse 13. This is a church that says, I want Jesus and I want to follow him. We don't get dragged down into other stuff. Second thing, this is a body that can recognize and refute false teaching. You see this in verse 14. This is a church that doesn't get seasick because it's pitched and tossed in the world. They're steady, they're rooted, they're clear. They don't worry too much. They keep their heads about them because they're rooted in Christ. Third thing, this is a church that speaks the truth in love. Ooh, that's hard. Because most of us think we're either one or the other. You're either truth-oriented or you're love-oriented. And Paul goes, if you're a Christian, you don't have that luxury. you got to do both. (laughs) And the last thing, it builds itself up in love. Love is the food that nourishes the body of Christ. Quick word on this, and then we're going to close. Biblical love, especially in the corporate sense when we're talking about church, takes initiative. Biblical love doesn't sit back and wait for the phone to ring. Love moves first. Now, we're going to land the plane. Micah and Emily are going to come back out, and we're going to sing a song that just talks about how much we need the Lord. And so I'm going to ask you just to sit with a question. You can sit in this moment with a question. You can take, about it or take it to your community group this week and talk about it together. You can journal about it. But I'm going to reach all the way back to the first verse we looked at. Here's the question. How are you walking? Basically, are you a hypocrite? And I'll just fast pass you on this. We all are. We all are. There are all, we all have areas of disconnect in our life where what we profess does not match what we practice. And so my word for you now to think about is to go, okay, Lord, help me bring balance. (laughs) And I can't write that prescription for you. That's you and the Lord. And so the question, as we sing this song in just a moment, for your community group this week, or maybe as you journal, or your private prayer time, how am I walking? Spend some time reflecting on this because Paul's gonna keep driving this bus for the next three chapters. (laughs) Let's pray, can we? Our Father, we can come to you boldly and confidently because of the gospel. And so already we say thank you for giving us grace over and over and over again. Thank you for saving us. And God, I do ask that as we consider our walk, we consider the world that we are walking in. Lord, help our walk to be consistent with what we say. Help our practice to be consistent with our profession of faith. We acknowledge that we need you to help us do this at all. We don't want to do this in our own strength because we know we can't because we've tried and we've failed. And so, Lord, help us, please. We ask you in Christ's name, everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, 
It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.